Before we get started with today's podcast, I just wanted to run an opportunity by you once again. I'm going to be teaching a systematic theology class, and it's free, but I'm going to be teaching a systematic theology class at First Baptist Church of Polk City um, beginning tomorrow night, August the 18th at 7 p.m. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way... It's, I'm providing this resource as an opportunity for people to grow in their uh, competency in knowing what it is that they believe, how it is that they can defend what they believe, and how it is that they can share uh, what they believe as we look into Scripture. And so if you want information on this, you can go to my website at mattsmusings.net. And you can uh, look at one of the articles. It's right up at the very top. It says Systematic Theology, and it's got a picture of the textbook. And uh, just click on that, and you can get some more information. At the bottom of that post, you can even download and print out the syllabus. Uh, once again, it's completely free. Uh, I suggest that people purchase the textbook, but you don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, I'm going to have a camera set up in a camera and a microphone set up in the classroom beginning tomorrow night. We've got about 30 people that we know of that are going to show up to the first class. So, you know, there's the microphone's going to pick up on some buzz and, and that sort of thing. Because uh, I'm, I mean, I'm just really excited about this opportunity. If you wanted to participate in this, go to my website, download the syllabus, and then have the uh, then I'm going to have the printout, the notes printout, uh, and you can, you can get the notes by going to our church website, fbcpolkcity.com, and uh, go to sermons underneath sermons, hit sermon notes, and that's where you're going to be able to to access and print out the. Uh, notes for tomorrow night's lecture, uh, and then uh, there'll be a countdown on our fa on our not our Facebook page. It's on our website. There'll be a countdown, and at seven o'clock sharp Eastern time, uh, the video feed will start on our website, our church website, and you'll be able to join in. The class is going to be no more than one hour long, and so I just want to encourage you to consider that as an option. Look forward to. Uh, getting some feedback from those in the room and those that are watching online to see how it is that we can make this the most beneficial to everybody that's a part of it. Well, I want to welcome you to the August 17th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Psalm 97 through 99 and Romans chapter 16, but we're only going to look at Romans chapter 16 in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Romans chapter 16. Uh, we've come to the very last chapter of this very incredible, theologically rich book uh, called Romans. The only other one that I would say, and this is a personal opinion, but the only other New Testament book that I would say that is comparable to this is the book of Ephesians. Um, they are rich in theology, and just the theology is devotional because you can see how as you understand these things, as you internalize them, and not just believe them intellectually, but really rest in those truths, your brain is just rewritten so that these are the truths that you know to be true. 
um, then it can affect our lives in incredible ways. So, but we've come to the end of this. And so let's look at chapter 16 uh, today. Um, most of chapter 16 is just a bunch of names, but there's quite a few things that are attached to these names, uh, and so I'll comment on a few of those as we go through. Okay, so verses 1 and 2, Romans 16 verses 1 and 2, we read about a, a woman named uh, Phoebe. Uh, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, it's not a biological sister, this is the understanding of what a Christian community is. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, we understand that Jesus is our elder brother, right? Because Jesus said, this is the way to pray, our Father in heaven. And whenever Jesus prayed, he prayed to the Father. And Jesus related to him as the Son, and the only begotten Son, right, of John 3.16. So Jesus is our elder brother. And when we mean elder, when, when we typically say elder brother, we don't mean that he's older than us. We mean that he has the rights of the firstborn. He is like none of the rest of us. So G we are brothers and sisters of each other. We're a family, regardless of whether we're in the same church or whether we have a Christian uh, brother or sister that's over in another country that we have never met, we'll never meet, they speak a different language, they live a different culture. If they have Jesus in their heart, they're our brothers and sisters. And so that's what uh, Paul is referring to when he called Phoebe his sister. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. It's talking about the family unit of the Christian community. But there's an interesting thing that he says uh, as he finishes off verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. Now, Sincrea is just a few miles from Corinth, so it's over in that area, if you're familiar where Corinth is. But the big thing I want to point out is it says, who is a servant of the church. Okay, the word servant in the original language, the Greek language is diakonia, diakonia, or diakonos, and it means servant. It can be a verb, it can be a noun, all depending on which form it takes. But it's the word from which we get deacon, right? And so, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. The word itself just means servant. That's what deacon means. Deacon means servant. But the interesting thing about this is it says, who is a servant of the church. It leads us to believe, and it's written in such a way that it sounds like she is in a, a bit of an official position at the church. And we're not sure what that is. She's a servant of the church a deaconess, and I know that makes some people nervous, but a, it, she is a servant, a female servant of the church, and it's written in such a way that it sounds like she has some sort of an official capacity at the church. Now, I know this is, this is a hot-button item. I'm not going to spend much time on this right now, a hot-button item on women in the ministry. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that we always have to be so careful about is not to let our outside flesh, you know, the sinful part of us, influence how it is that we see Scripture or how it is that we interpret Scripture. And uh, do I believe that the Bible is clear in that only men can 
fulfill the position of pastor. Well, yes, I do believe that. I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly, and we're going to go through passages of Scripture, 1 Timothy 3 being the classic test, text and some other things, where we're going to see that, yes, for it was, and I don't believe it was just a first century thing. I think when we look at what Paul rooted this in, that he rooted it in creation, that Adam was created first and then woman. And so it's not that women cannot be better speakers. It's not that women cannot be better leaders. Honestly, I know some women who are a whole lot better at teaching than guys that even are fulfilling the position of pastor. But that doesn't matter. When we look at Scripture, we see that it is... a it is assigned, it's a role that's given to men. Now, the sinful part is that some men allow their male chauvinism to kind of rear up, and then they interpret it that way, and they completely miss the spirit of what God's doing. You know, we can speak truth, but say it in such a way that it is so utterly distasteful, and it is not the way that God presents it. So, um, I do not believe that I, I believe that the scripture is clear that the office of pastor is to be filled solely by men. Uh, now, deacons, I will tell you that when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, whenever it talks of pastor, it gives qualifications for the pastor, but when it goes into deacons, it says deacons are to be so-and-so blameless and so-and-so, and then it says, and wives are to be. Now, that word wives is the word gune, which means women. And so could he be saying that the qualification of those women that would fill a role of deaconess? I'm just telling you what is out there. You need to know these things. Now, as far as where I stand on this, I stand uh, reasonably firmly on the fact that I think the Bible teaches also that the formal office of deacon is to be also for men. Uh, one of the places that I would go to is uh, first uh, is Acts chapter six when it talks about the difficulties that were going on in the first church in Jerusalem and how it is that the elders, the pastors, the apostles called upon the church to choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit and had some other qualifications. And we believe that that's where the office of deacon started. If that's not it, we don't have the beginning of the office of deacon, which wouldn't make sense. It seems like an office like that of deacon would we would un, it would be given in scripture about how it started. So I think Acts 6 is it and when you look at it it's seven men. So how are we to understand Romans 16:1? Was she a deaconess? Was she was there something else another position in which she was feeling but she was it was the title uh, diakonia, uh, that she was a servant of the church. I'm just telling you, I don't understand. I don't know. I, uh, I can certainly see how there's room for debate on this. Just wanted to throw that out. Uh, Romans 16, verse 3, he goes into Priscilla and Aquila, uh, 3 through four, actually, and this was just a very special couple. Paul had met them on his second missionary journey in Corinth. Uh, they were fellow tent makers, and they just really enjoyed uh, being with Paul, Paul with them. Uh, we also read a little bit later on that they very 
tactfully and wisely pulled Apollos aside and, and instructed him of a better way and, in, and informed his theology in a way that did not bring shame to him. So this is just a very special couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, in verse 5, it uh, says, Greet also the church that meets in their home. Okay, so this is something else we need to understand. Greet also the church that meets in their home. That's what verse 5 says. When we say, oh, I'm going to church, a lot of times we think of a building, you know, and we think the church is the building and the building is the church. That One, that is not true. Uh, church, in the original language, is the word ecclesia, which means the called out ones. And so a church is really the people, the gathered ones, the called out ones that gather together. The people are the church, not the building. But we also think that since we worship in buildings, in church buildings, that that must be what they did in the first century. It says, greet also the church, but it continues, that meets in their home. So what we understand, we've got to be very careful about taking our 21st century mindset and taking it back into the first century. We cannot do that. The church that meets in their home means the called out people, the gathering of people, but they weren't meeting in a church building. They were meeting in a home. One of the things we know about how the church met was it seems as if they tried to meet in synagogues. It looks as if they were trying to meet in synagogues, but initially, at some point, they broke off and they began to meet in houses. If you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 20, uh, is it 20 and 21? Paul said, I kept back nothing from you, but proclaimed repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I proclaimed this house to house. Churches met in homes. And so I'm telling you that I've done before in, in previous churches, I have called off Sunday night and uh, said, you know, we're going to start meeting in homes and on Sunday nights, and we're going to gather together, and we're going to meet in homes to have Bible studies. And I'm telling you, there's always that handful of people that just resist it because they want to be in that church building. But I'm telling you that if we did it the way the first century church did it, we'd actually be meeting in homes. We'd actually be, that's it. that would even be more biblical because that's how Paul did it. That's how Peter did it. That's how many of these people did it. They met in homes. And so when it says, greet also the church that meets in their home, this was the way things were in the first century, that the churches met in homes. Okay, so now we go through verse uh the, the second part of verse 5, where it talks about a man named, or a dear friend named Apennetus. Then verse 6, it says Mary, but some translations uh, actually have Miriam, or Miriam uh, being the name, which means that she probably was a Jew of Jewish descent. In verse 7, we have some more names. I'm not going to say all of those names. Verse 8, got another name. Nine, another name. Just Paul's going through all of these people, just uh, saying, "Greet these people." He he's not just saying he's not just saying, "Hey, tell everybody in the church at Rome I said hi," or the churches that are meeting in homes, tell them I said hi. He's actually saying, "Greet so and so," and then he's giving something personal about that person. Uh, verse 10, he gives the name. Verse 11, greet Herodian. Ooh, this sounds like this is someone um, that was in uh, 
maybe the Roman government or maybe a descendant of the Roman government. There was a Herodian empire there in uh, Jerusalem and in Judea for a while. And so maybe that name drew from there. We don't know. Um, verse 12, we see some more names. Uh, oh, verse 13 is interesting. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, we don't know for sure, and there, there's all, there's, you know, if you read commentaries and things like that, there's speculation on a lot of these names. Verse 13, I, I, it may be possible that this is the son of Simon who carried Jesus' cross. We don't know, but it could be that Rufus is the son of Simon who carried Jesus' cross. So if we were to turn over to Mark 15, and at the end of verse 20, Mark chapter 15, the end of verse 20, it says this, they led him out to crucify him. This is talking about Jesus. They led Jesus out to crucify him. Listen to Mark 15, 21. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So why does Mark mention his sons? Usually when, when one of the, the, well, back up a little bit. One of the things about God's word is that it has a great economy of words. Uh, what, what we mean by that, maybe I could say that a little bit better, but, it ha but what, what, I'm, what we mean by that is that every single thing that's in there has a purpose. Now, we may not always understand why God said or why God included things. As God was writing it through men, we sometimes don't understand why God included certain things. But guarantee, nothing is in there in the Bible by accident. Everything is on purpose. And so, why did Mark say that the one who carried Jesus' cross was Simon of Cyrene and his sons were Rufus and Alexander? Well, it seems that Mark, who was, it almost seemed, I mean, he was writing to Gentiles. He wasn't writing to Jews. He was writing to Gentiles. It seems that Mark would have included those names because he would have, it, it seems that he would have wanted to, uh, caused the, his readers to understand that, oh, that's who that is. That's Rufus, or that's, I know Alexander. I didn't know his dad was the one that carried Jesus' cross. And so it could be that that's why Mark included it. Simon carried the cross. His sons were Alexander and Rufus. Well, the only other instance that we have, there are some Alexanders, but the only other instance we have of a Rufus is in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. We don't know that this is the son of the man that carried Jesus' cross, but it is a possibility, and it's certainly a neat thought. Well, in verses 14 and 15, we have a lot more people that Paul is saying greet, and he's calling them by name. And then verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, let's talk about the ways that the way that we get into Scripture and the way that we understand it. There are three general steps to understanding Scripture. First, observation. Second, interpretation, third, application. So, did you get it? Observation, 
interpretation, application. Now, a lot of people like to read the Bible and immediately jump to application, but that can get you to a very unbiblical uh, conclusion. For instance, greet one another with a holy kiss. If we read that and say, okay, jump right to application, I guess in our church, we got to start kissing each other. And it can't be just, you know, any old kiss. It's got to be a holy kiss because we have to greet one another with a holy kiss. No, that's, that's not how we understand scripture. Observation first. What, what did the writer mean when he said what he said? What did he mean? Interpretation, what are the general principles or what is the general principle that I pull out of this? And third, now let's drop that principle down into our culture. How does it apply? How does that biblical principle apply? And so observation, what is it? Well, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul was saying, take a culturally appropriate way of showing affection in a way that is culturally appropriate and, of course, is appropriate for believers. Of course, there, there's no there's no mischief going on with this holy kiss. It may be like the French, you know, kind of kissing on one side and then on the other. We don't know what this holy kiss looked like, but it was probably something like that. It was just a way to demonstrate a closeness, uh, a friendship with each other that that included touch, that included touch, meaningful relationship and touch. And uh, I'm telling you, God made us as creatures to just enjoy touch by those we love, by those we care for. And so this is what Paul's saying. Observation, Paul told them, the church at Rome, to greet one another with a holy kiss. That was for them. Okay, so what is the interpretation? Draw out the general principle. What is the word of God saying in this? Greet one another with a holy kiss. What's the general principle? The principle would seem to be that you are to cultivate a family sort of feel in your church gatherings and welcome each other in a way that is relationally rich and also, you know, there is that degree of appropriate touch, appropriate touch. So how would that fall down into our culture? How would that fall down? Well, you know what? Sometimes it depends on what part of the United States you're on as to what's culturally appropriate. But how it would apply is cultivate a a, a feel of family within your church so that you're not just a lot of loose connections, a lot of people that are just showing up to the same building. Build community. Build relationship. But also... Hold out your hand and shake a hand, or you know, put your hand on someone's shoulder. You know, if it's appropriate to pat them on the on the shoulder, on the upper back. You know, if you're just saying, "Hey, it's so good to see you this morning," meaningful touch. So that's what we see in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It looks differently in 21st century America. Then he says in verse 16, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. He just said, hey, we are all a big family. Y'all not only cultivate family where you are in your one church, but I want you to know that all of the churches are a big family. We're all family. We're all in this together. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so when we get to verses 17 and 18, uh, Paul says this. He says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, so now he's going to get back into 
He's just he's just a father figure to the churches and to Christians, and he, so he's speaking into their life. And so now he's gonna he got away from those names, and he's gonna get back into them in just a second. But he just gets into this teaching paternal mode, uh, verse seventeen and eighteen. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions. So we just said, greet one another with a holy kiss, develop a family feel, and even including meaningful, appropriate touch, develop good, close relationships in your church. But then in verse 7, he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who create divisions. Watch out for those who are going to come in and try to undermine that feel of family undermine that relationship that you are trying to do. And he said that they're going to create divisions and my translation says obstacles. It can mean snares. It can mean traps. They're just setting up things to cause people to uh, stumble. They're setting up things. We're talking relationally speaking. We're, he, he's. They're just trying to come in and divide the group cause a rift in congregations. He said, you watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Okay, so now he is also including that they're not only causing division, but he said the way that these people could cause division is what they teach. What they teach. This is why I'm doing this theology class tomorrow, beginning tomorrow night, because I want to provide an opportunity for people, and I'm not a theology professor. I've taught, I've been a professor, an adjunct professor at the Baptist College of Florida for a year. I taught two classes, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, but I've never taught theology. But I'm telling you, I've been enough in God's Word, and I've studied enough that I, I want to do this. I want to go through a theology book and help people to know what truth is so that if they hear me say something false or they hear someone else that comes in to teach or just somebody that comes into the midst that tries to create division by teaching things that are not biblical, they can sniff it out. That's why I want to do this class. And so we actually said, avoid them, verse 18, because such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. He said, these people are not serving the Lord. They're in it for themselves. They've got a fleshly thing going on, and maybe they're not even saved. Maybe, maybe not, but they've got a problem. And he said, they're not serving the Lord Jesus. You avoid those people, and you watch out for them. He said, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, or that word can be naive, naive. They deceive the hearts of the naive or unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Once again, this is why, and I even had somebody, I, was, I called someone today, and um, they had been visiting our church uh, for a little while, and... Um, I called them up today just to check on them, see if they had any questions that I could help them with. I want to say this in a way that is that gets my point across without seeming self-serving, okay? I, I Anything that I can do, anything that I can do is only by God's grace. If it were not God's grace, I could do, you could do absolutely nothing, all I am is somebody that's convinced that God's word is true and that God's word is good and that I am continuing to feast upon it and I just want to share it with others. And this uh, this couple that had been visiting the church said that they were picking up on that and they went away feeling as if they had 
understood. They'd gotten into God's Word. They understood it. It was relevant. They saw how it applied, and they went away and, and were comforted. All I am is just an ordinary guy that's in love with the Lord. I love His Word. I'm digging into it, and I want to share it. This is what people are hungry for. And don't be content. D listener, do not be content to be somebody that's apathetic. And by virtue of the fact that you followed you know, this long or you're listening in to a podcast like this, you probably are almost certainly someone who is hungry for more of God's Word. Whether it's me or somebody else, you want to dig in to find out what God has to say, what is truth. We need more and more people like you. We need more and more people like you because Paul said in verse 18 that there are people that come in and teach things and they deceive the hearts of the naive with smooth talk and flattering words. There are always going to be people in our congregations who are naive, who can be swayed by false teachings. That's why we need you. That's why God's Holy Spirit wants to fill you. He's already in you if you're saved, but he wants to fill you and use you so that you can be one of those, if I could use the word, one of those watchdogs. And when you see somebody coming in teaching something that's wrong, you're on it. You're on it. Um, we're not the police. I, I don't intend to imply that anytime somebody makes... I mean, a small error that we're on it because then that that's just that's criticism. And, you know, then what we create is a culture in which people are afraid to even speak because they're going to say something, uh, may, maybe say something wrong, and they know they're going to get nailed for it. We're talking about particularly the big stuff. We pray about the small things, uh, maybe help a little bit, but we're talking about the big things. So, verse 19, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what's good and yet innocent about what's evil. So what Paul's saying in verse 19 is he said, okay, there are naive people, but Roman Christians, I'm not talking about you. He said, I know you're not naive. Now, one of the things we don't know is if Paul was being sincere or if Paul was doing what leaders do sometimes. Uh, sometimes leaders acknowledge people for what they are and say, I am so glad that you are competent in this area. And so they're being honest. Sometimes leaders with good intentions, and this is not necessarily wrong. It could, in many cases, be great leadership. Sometimes leaders say, you know what? I am so glad that you are. And then what the leader says is they paint a picture of something that this person is close to, but not they're not quite there, right? And so the leader essentially is kind of painting the sky that they want those who are listening or those followers to fly in. And so when Paul essentially said, Roman Christians, I know y'all are not naive, was he were they all that mature? Were they really that spiritually and biblically mature? Or was Paul just encouraging them to keep going? Yeah, we don't know. We do know that that's the ideal. That's what we should be. We should be spiritually and biblically mature so we can sniff out false uh, false uh, doctrine and especially that would undermine the gospel, undermine the health of the church, undermine the unity of the church, and we're on it. We're on it. 
Uh, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, that takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Uh, Genesis 3.15, in the Greek, it is typically called the Proto-Evangelion. Proto-Evangelion, and what that means is the first mention of the gospel. That's where in Genesis 3, we understand that's the chapter of the curse, but that's where God looked at Eve and said that um, that you will, you know, essentially you will have a descendant. I, I don't have the verse right in front of me. And he, actually, I think, actually, I think it was to the, uh, the serpent that, uh, the, hold on one second. Okay, so I found it in Genesis 3. 3.15. Actually, the Lord is talking to the servant, a serpent to Satan, and he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So that's the proto-evangelion. That is talking about Jesus, talking about really the gospel and how that Jesus, uh, Satan is going to strike Jesus' heel. He's going to hurt him. Jesus is going to die there on the cross, but Jesus is not going to strike Satan's heel. He's going to crush his head, crush his head. Satan will be defeated. Satan will hurt Jesus. Jesus will crush Satan. And that's what we see in verse 20. That's what Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So this is interesting. It's not Jesus' feet. It's your feet. This is one of the beauties of this whole thing of our identity being tied up with Christ. That Christ is the one who will crush Satan's head, but he will do it through us, graciously do it through us. Well, then uh, we get to verse 21, and essentially Paul gives a lot of other names and says, everybody says, hey. Verse 22 is kind of interesting. He said, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. <laughs> and we're thinking, wait a second. It's like, you know, you're looking at a landscape and all of a sudden a ground uh, hog pokes its head up and it's like, where'd you come from? I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So who was Tertius? Okay, so, and we and we may even say, well, I thought Paul wrote this, and Tertius is saying I wrote this letter. So what's going on is the way that it is, un, the way that it's generally understood that Paul and and maybe some others wrote is that the Holy Spirit moved them, but they might have been actually physically moving as they were talking. So they maybe you can imagine as as Romans is being written, Paul may be pacing the floor, walking back and forth. And so he has this guy named Tertius. And Tertius may have been at a table, sitting down at a chair, at a table, and he some would call him a stenographer, uh or a secretary, there's other words that can be used here, but basically he would be the one who listens to Paul and then writes it down. And so Paul maybe took a breath and Tertius inserted, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, I tell you hi too. You know, Paul hadn't mentioned my name yet, so I'm going to go on and put it in. Uh, so that's what verse 22 is. Then we get back to Paul uh, saying that, hey, Gaius and Erastus and Quartus, uh, they all say hey too. Well, when then we get to verse 25 through 27, we have the closing benediction. 
the closing benediction. I'm looking at the time. I, I don't want this podcast to get too long, so I just want to read through this very quickly, explain it, and then we're going to go to our time of prayer. Paul gives this benediction as he closes this letter. In verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, this is ultimately the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Paul claims it because he is the one who is sharing it. He is the one who is telling others about it. It's not somebody else's false gospel. It's the pure gospel that Paul preaches. According to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation, listen to this, of the mystery kept silent for long ages. So what's that? What's the mystery that was kept silent for long ages? You know what that was? It was the gospel. One of the things we believe is progressive revelation. We believe in progressive revelation. And what that means is, is there are things that were spoken about, maybe in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or maybe in the Psalms, but they weren't really understood. Those, those authors didn't really understand what they were writing. Many of the prophets spoke, and they spoke Isaiah. What must he have been thinking whenever he he uh, wrote what we know as Isaiah 53? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah must have written that down and thought, I don't know what I just wrote. What did I just write? What's this about? And yet, so so it was a mystery. It was It was something that was hidden in the Old Testament. But now it's it's been revealed in the church age. This is what Paul is saying, that there were so many things that the Old Testament saints did not understand. The Old Testament prophets did not know. They did not understand. But now in the church age, we know it. So he said, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now, church age, revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. So we are now in the New Testament because we have heard from Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is enlivening our minds and we can understand. We're looking back to the Old Testament and seeing incredible truths, and we understand what they were writing more than they understood. That's what he's saying. According to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Okay? Notice that to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul's not saying we just want all Gentiles to come to faith. He's not just saying we want all Gentiles to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to the obedience of the faith. If it is true saving faith, it will move the person to obedience. All of us will struggle with sin. Every one of us will struggle with sin. We are saved by grace, and God continues to shower His grace on us. Grace to enable us to live, and grace to forgive us when we fail. But I'm telling you that as to the main of a Christian's life, the way that we can know that we are saved is obedience to Jesus. Obedience to His Word. Verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rich truth that is in your word. It's not only intellectually stimulating, 
it's not only enjoyable just to read and and then as we read more and study more that your Holy Spirit connects things and we have the joy of seeing how scripture fits in in ways that we had not previously seen. It's not only intellectually stimulating. Lord, it's the food that we need. We need your word. This is Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, I pray that in an age where it seems as if many who profess to be Christians and very well may be Christians are not sufficiently growing in their knowledge of your word, Lord, I pray that we would not be like that. I pray that we would be people who are digging into your word, ultimately to know you, but then to sit at your feet and listen to what you tell us is true regarding what we are to believe and how it is that we are to behave. Because, Lord, I think once again we are moving into an age when it's going to become unpopular to be a Christian. It's going to become difficult to be a Christian. And there are going to be there's going to be incentive for many to speak about things and not speak about some truths that are clearly in your word and uh, Lord you're going to need people you're going to be looking for people that have done the hard work gotten into your word know what truth is and are able to speak the whole truth not just a part of the truth but the whole truth Father help us to love you, to love your word, and to love others so much that we dig into your word and then share it with others, not as a pharisaical, critical, judgmental person, but as someone who has found life in your words and wants to share it with others and speak into into the lives of others. Help us in that endeavor. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.